Welcome to Coaching Kern in episode 14. I can't believe we're at 14 episodes already. I'm here, Dave D'Agostino, as your co-host with Kevin Kernan, America's most beloved sports writer. Also in the house today, we have our resident expert, 45 years in professional baseball. He is in the Coaching Kernan Witness Protection Program. We'll refer to him as Bull. Uh, Bull, welcome back. Kevin, welcome back. And we are blessed today to have Mark Wiley here, 40 plus years in Major League Baseball, most recently with the Colorado Rockies as a director of pitching, has spent time in the bigs as a pitcher, major league pitcher in the front office as a pitching coach and a skipper in the minors. Mark, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you today. Thanks a lot, Dave. Enjoy, Enjoy being with you. And Kevin, another great article for you on Ball Nine. Everybody make sure we're following Kevin on Ball Nine. Uh, Trader Jack, Jim Cott, recent inductee into the Hall of Fame. That's catching a lot of traction on social media. Yeah, actually, I heard from a lot of baseball people because, you know, I've known Kitty for a long time. And I gave him a call the other day just to wish him well. And and his relationship with Jack McCain, and we'll address some of this with Mark because it's all about relationships. But he was a 19-year-old pitcher, one in four, class C ball, thought he might get released. And uh, Jack gave him some incredible advice. Basically, you got yourself into this trouble. Get out of it. Learn how to get out of it. And uh, But the point that Jim made to me was so important. And that this is what he's going to do. So we're going to give everybody a little preview of his, uh, his Hall of Fame speech. He's going he's gonna to bring Jack up in the, um, in the audience. He's going to have him stand up and say, and he wants to make the point that the line between Maybe think maybe getting released as a 19-year-old, because he thought one more bad start, he might get released, and making it to the Hall of Fame is razor thin. So uh, I know uh, Mark has spent some great time with Jack McKeon, too, and it's all about relationships. But I want to run right into this because we're lucky to have Mark. I read somewhere, Mark, that you pitched 368 innings one year. Is, is that right? Is that wrong? Tell me about the, the most innings you ever you ever pitched. And by the way, also, Eddie Bain sent me a note, and he also said your curveball wasn't as good as you thought it was. So he's going to have it. So, uh, so but that, yeah, 368 innings. to live with his curveball. <laughs> yeah. Was that 368 innings? Is that accurate? Well, when I signed out of college, um, I'd led the nation in innings pitched that year and uh, complete games and wins and everything. And then um, I went to Auburn. With I signed with the Twins, and I went to Auburn, and I led that league in innings pitched. And then I went to Instructional League, and I pitched uh, a ton of innings there too. And at the end of Instructional League, they asked me if I wanted to go to winter ball and I said, well, I'll go if you want me to go. Because back then, you did what they told you to do. Exactly. You know? And uh, uh, I, they asked me if I would go. And I said, well, I'll go. But, you know, I've thrown almost 370 innings this year. And they go, 370 innings? What are you talking about? And I said, well, I signed this year. I led the nation in innings pitched in college. And then in my first half season, I did. And they go, oh, my gosh, you can't go to winter ball. Yeah, they, they, um, they- they figured it out. So, uh, what? Uh, and you, you were at Cal Poly, uh, and I think your coach had a big influence on you. And we, and we, we geared the show a lot towards young pitchers and things like that too. So, what kind of advice? Uh, and then I'll throw it over to uh, Bull. But what kind of advice did you uh, get from from your coach? I think it was his name is John, John Spelinas. Spelinas. John yeah. Spelinas. He's in the Hall of Fame in college. He um, great man. I always refer to him as like the John Wooden of baseball. 
uh, when he would go to an NCAA convention and they heard he was going to show up, uh, he would be scheduled for like five major lectures and everybody would pack the place. Wow. Um, he just was one of those kind of guys. Um, but I, I remember the one thing that he used to tell me right from the get-go when I first went to school there, he used to say, if you surround yourself with good people, you'll be good. That was one of his first things. He had many, many unbelievable uh, coaching tips and sayings and stuff. But, you know, that one kind of held true. Uh, you know, I've heard other people kind of say the same thing years later. Um, but it makes all the sense in the world. And when I talk to young players, uh, you know, when I'd go around to the minor leagues and I'd meet with all the players, I would tell them, I said, you know, you know, if you want to be good, you know, you want to be surround yourself with people that have similar values and goals that you do, because you'll help yourself stay in the straight, straight line direction you want to go to achieve those goals. I said, you know, if you hang around with with knuckleheads and guys that all they want to do is what's off the field and they just want to party, um, you know, you're not going to reach your goal. So you want to surround yourself with guys with, with, uh, with like interests and goals. And I think it, it, it really helps. Uh, and most people that have achieved uh, really good things, if you talk to them, that's one thing that holds true. I love that advice, Mark, as a, as a former coach and a dad, I always tell my players and my children, you're going to be the average of the five people that you hang around with the most. So, so choose them carefully. Uh, you're, you know, John gave you some other advice too. some, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of different advice, but there was some tactical advice he gave you. If I'm right in saying, he told you, don't widen the plate. Can you tell our audience our yeah, kids out there what that means? That's his, uh, that's his famous, um, talk one of the, one of the NCAA conventions he gave a speech and he he walked out with a home plate hung around his neck uh on a rope oh, wow. and he never made he didn't make any acknowledgement of it at all most all the way through the whole talk um and during that time he he asked the guys in the audience he says any of you guys coached in little league and guys raised their hand and he'd ask how wide is the plate in little league? And he would say, uh, he would get hardly no answers. They didn't really know. And he'd answer it for them and say 17 inches. And he says, guys that played in high school, coached in high school, how many of them are here? How, how wide is the plate? You hear a few guys yell from the audience, 17 inches. He says, how about college? Same thing, 17 inches. How about professional baseball? 17 inches. And that would lead him into his comments about how not only in baseball, but in life, we're widening the plate. And it's so ap appropriate for today's world that uh, in so many things that we're widening the plate. Um, and and it was he was before his time on all these things, but he, he made a comment. He says, you know, when you're in Little League, he goes, you just said it's 17 inches. He says, now, if if you're a pitching coach and you're having a guy pitch and he can't throw a ball over the plate, are you going to widen it to 25 inches so he can throw it over the plate and get and be successful? He says, it's the same plate. We don't need to widen it. And he, you know, and he brought in other things and other areas of life during his talk 
to where that's exactly what's happening. No, you, can Google, you can Google it or you can go to YouTube and you can listen to his speech. It's It's been written. Guys have written articles about it. Um, it's called, you know, 17 Inches. Bull, you wanted to add something. Yeah, we, we, we talk about that a lot on here, Mark. Um, you know, that uh, as an industry, we're lowering the bar. As a society, we're lowering the bar. And he was so far, far out in front of everyone. And like you said, he is the John Wooden of college baseball. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be mentored by you. And um learn a lot of things that you would learn from him and um, just certainly uh, it has been a blessing in my life too. So um, well, thank you. Um, I did tell you, he, you know, I'll give you one more thing that, that he said, he, he made the comment, the rigid lessons learned in the game of baseball are second only to religion in strengthening the morals of American people. Number one, handling failure. Two, handling frustration. Three, handling fear. Four, handling embarrassment. Five, handling a slump. Six, making adjustments. Seven, developing control. Those were the seven things that he felt that were learned in baseball that what you need to learn in life. That wow. is, so yeah. That's that, that blows me away. That's baseball is life, and uh, and and obviously all the years, uh, you know, you, you you would pass those those uh, lessons along, and and some great teams you were with, and some great things you did. But uh, I, I want to focus a little bit on the Cleveland experience. Um, you know, what was that? You know, we're talking mid nineties when we, that team was really coming into its own. Just a uh, Give us a brief overview of what you saw from that team. And, of course, I was there in 97, I think, when you beat the Yankees and then you, you lost to the Marlins. But uh, what, what was great about that team and what, what do you remember most about some of those, uh, those years? Well, you know, um, for me, it's always about the players. Um, and, uh, you know, we had some tremendous players on that team. We had a good coaching staff. We had a good manager in Mike Hargrove. Uh, you know, we had gone in relatively short time being a 100-loss team to being a 100-win team. And uh, the one thing I used to tell guys, because we were on the other end of it uh, for so many years. My first four years there, you know, we weren't very good. And uh, we – I used to look over at the other dugout before the game and they'd be having fun and, and uh, they'd be kind of like looking over at our dugout. Like there was no fear. There was nothing. There was no uh, negative anticipation vibe coming from their side of the field. And then when we became good, it was the exact opposite. Wow. I'd look over the other dugout and they'd be like pacing, they'd be walking around, you know, they'd be showing some highlights on the diamond vision or something. And they were just dying. They were like, Oh my gosh. You know? And I said, gosh, we've told, we've turned into one of those teams. 
And then I used to have fun. Every team we play, every series, before the start of the series, I would match up our starting lineup, our pitching and our bullpen against their team. I would, I would, I would do it to myself. I would look and I'd go, well, uh, Manny's better than their right fielder. Lofton's better than their center fielder. Albert Bell's better than their left fielder. You know, I'd go around the deal. <laughs> the scale's better than their shortstop. You know, I'd go all the way around and there might be one push or maybe they'd have one guy that was better than one of the guys in our lineup. And I go, no wonder we're winning. We were a better team. And, uh, you know, we probably, you know, we, we, you know, I think John Hart and Dan O'Dowd, they did the right thing in, you know, bringing in, we, you know, it was kind of fun because I scouted those guys before we got them because I was off the field as I wasn't coaching and I was being a pro scout. And they had me go out and look at these guys, Dennis Martinez and, and Oro Hershiser and uh, like Eddie Murray. And they'd have me look at these guys, Jose Mesa, and give my report on where I thought they'd fit with our club. So when I came back on the field in 95, they were already on the team. I felt kind of good that I was part of, of the scouting of those players to try to acquire them because they we needed that veteran presence. We had some really talented young players, but we needed veteran uh, veteran people to show the kids how to react, you know, when you lose, how to react when you win, you know, learn how to have fun, um, take it serious when you need to. And those guys kind of kind of did that for us. So that club was was special in so many ways. The only disappointment I had is we didn't win a World Series. I mean, we were in it, but we didn't win it. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, we faced some good teams. Um, I, I think that the old saying that, you know, pitching beats good hitting, I think we ran into that some in the World Series. And we didn't really have – the one thing, we, if, if somebody asked me what we were missing, I thought we had great defense, offense, great bullpen. Our starting pitchers were really were good. They were solid. We did not have that one Pedro Martinez or Schilling or Clemens. We didn't have that one guy that would probably go out there and beat anybody anytime. Yeah, you didn't have that and horse. A lot of times you, you need yeah. that guy. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And, but it also comes back to what you were saying about life's lessons. I mean, you learn some things there, and uh, the the young players you had. Is there? Can you tell us one, uh, maybe either a Bartolo Colon or uh, a Manny Ramirez stories that kind of sticks sticks with you from those days? Um, I, I will tell you first on Manny, which what people don't realize about Manny. Uh, you know, after he left and went to Boston and all that, and. Actually, I went to Kansas City, and people used to ask me stuff about Manny. You know, is Manny really, you know, this way or that way? Or is he kind of a nut? Or is he this and that? And I go, you know, Manny is so good of a hitter. And I said, I'll give you an example of a game. Manny could strike out with bases loaded looking three times in a row during a game. Then he'd hit a three-run home run off you in the in the ninth inning to win the game. And I said, and when he struck out, 
He would walk over, he would put his bat in the bat rack, he'd put his helmet in the helmet thing, he'd go over and he'd sit on the top of the bench, and you might hear one thing where he'd go, Konyo. That's all he'd say. Huh. And I and people say I people were amazed that he didn't get madder, you know, like big situations and he didn't didn't come through. And I I finally realized. It was because he was so good and he knew something good was going to happen real soon anyway. So he didn't worry about it. Such confidence. He had unbelievable confidence. Most confidence I've never, I've never seen. I never saw him throw bats or helmets or anything ever, ever. And, uh, you know, people used to say stuff. I mean, I think he, you know, he might be thinking about his hitting or something and it might take away from his, you know, defense at times, or he would do something stupid on the base paths and our players would get really mad at him because he was kind of the younger player. So the older players would get on him pretty hard. Um, but he was, that's just the way he was, you know, he was just, uh, you know, he was innocent. His humor was innocent. He didn't really mean anything by it. You know, I, I tell you when I went, I did notice something in Manny in those years in Cleveland. And I used to tell when I moved on to other teams and we played against Manny, um, I would coach him up on this. He Manny would sit on a pitch an entire at bat. If you ever watch Manny in the early years, you'd see him take a lot of third strikes. Because he sat on a pitch till two strikes, he didn't care. If he didn't get the pitch, he'd just take strike three and walk away. And he would do it through the hole at bat. When I was at Cleveland, he did a lot through the hole at bat. So uh, when I left and I went to, to Kansas City and, and he was in Boston, I told our guys, I said, listen, if you throw a fastball, first pitch, let's say and you're trying to go down the way and you throw it right down the middle and Manny doesn't move, stay all fastballs because he's sitting on your breaking ball or vice versa. And it worked. And then all of a sudden, I don't remember what, what when it was when he was with Boston, whether it was during his first year or during the second year or something, he started switching in the middle of the bats. He figured it out. He figured out that he was giving it away, I'm sure. Yep. And yep. he'd switch and bat. Then he started doing some unbelievable damage because he could hit anything if he looked for it. It's just that he was looking for it for a hole at bat rather than one pitch. If he looked at pitch to pitch, then he was even more dangerous. Sounds like he embodies those seven characteristics you mentioned early on by that John Skillings used to put. Manny wouldn't have been the first name I thought of, but the way you describe him, he sounds like the ideal candidate for those. Yeah, he, you know, he was funny. I mean, he used to do crazy stuff. He, Some player would be looking for, Sandy Alomar would be looking for his underwear and Manny would be wearing it. Um. You should do stuff like that. I mean, and him and Julian Tavares, they were like brothers, and they used to cut up all the time, and guys would always, you know, periodically they'd have to, like, kind of put their thumb on them or Grover would put the thumb on them because they were so carefree and fun-loving. And then you had Bayerga uh, for a while there, and, uh, you know, he was kind of the same kind of way. So, you know, we had a, quite a mixture of players on that team. We had. Uh, uh, two guys. Um, one was uh, Dwayne Kirby, and uh, the other was uh, Alfaro. Um, what's his name? Gosh, Jesus, Jesus Alfaro. I guess yeah. 
they were on our team and one was a utility infielder and the other one was a utility outfielder. And they would come in late, you know, Kirby would play for Albert sometimes late in the game in left field. Uh, Jim Tomey uh, was playing third the first year in 95 and they would put out far, he would, he would be, uh, I mean, Espinosa, I'm sorry, it was Espinosa. Yeah. Uh, Espy, they put Espy in to play third base for defense. And it would be unbelievable because in the ninth inning, <clears throat> Espinosa would turn a double, turn a really tough play in the hole into a double play that Jimmy would have never been able to get to. And uh, so those guys served unbelievable purpose on the field, but more so they were those guys on the bench that kept everybody loose that, that, that uh, just loved all the players on the team, pumped them up, made them feel good when they were feeling down. Um, if they were getting a big head in the locker room, they would make fun of them. Um, and the guys respected them so the guys didn't get mad at them. And that had a lot to do, for me, had a lot to do with some of our success on the field, that we had two guys that weren't everyday players that – actually really helped. I'll give you an example. Dennis Martinez was on the backside of his career, still very competent, very good. Um, but we, at that time, him and Oro were, you know, they were pitching maybe six innings a lot, unless they had a really low pitch out or were doing really well. Uh, we would get them out of there because we had such a good bullpen that they just, the, the bullpen would just wipe out the game and they would win the game. So, Dennis was pitching this one particular game. He was pitching really well, but we took him out after like six innings. And he toweled off and sat watch, on the bench watching the game the rest of the way. Well, the game ended. Jose Mesa closed it out. Everybody goes out on the field, including Dennis, to congratulate uh, Jose Mesa. And there's Dwayne and Espy. Um, they're out there on the mound. And one got on one side of Dennis. And one got on the other side of Dennis, locked their arm with him and walked him off the mound back to the dugout saying, don't mess with our money. Don't mess with our money. Dennis had an ego like a lot of really good players do. I mean, that meant everything to Dennis. I mean, that made Dennis feel like he was the guy. You know, even though the he didn't complete the game, they were showing his worth and how important he was to the team in front of all the teammates and everybody was laughing. Don't mess with, don't mess with, don't mess with our money. Don't mess with our money. I'll never forget that. And those are the kind of things that guys that don't play every day can add to the chemistry of a team to make a special team even more special. That's why Wayne's still coaching first base for Buck Showalter everywhere he goes. Yep. He's been in for years and you know, it's so funny. Some of the players like that throughout my course of coaching, um, have all be, I've, I've, I've coached against them in the big leagues. I talk to them all the time. Um, you know, those kind of players, you can see it when they're on the field, how valuable they be as either a development guy or a major league coach. Right. And, and these are all the little things too. And this is why I think what's lost in today's game to some extent, but way back in, uh, well, I think it was 1987, you were a trend center because you were the youngest pitching coach, I think, in, in baseball at that time, 39 years old with the Orioles and Cal Ripken Sr. The Orioles' time must have been – because you had a couple stints. What was, The Orioles must have been such an interesting team because 
who the manager was, but also uh, who was coming up and things like that. Uh, was that experience that again, you have so many great experiences. Where does that experience fit in your life, life's work? Well, that was, you know, Tom Giordano, Hank Peters, they gave me a chance when I came off the field. Uh, I don't know. They may be a double A manager right after playing, which is like unheard of, especially if you're a pitcher. Um, but they gave me opportunity after opportunity. And I always told guys, um, I was never, uh, you know, I'm not trying to pat my own back, but I never was a guy that was looking for like moving up or, or, you know, becoming a big league coach or anything like that. I think part of it is because I spent so much time playing in the minor leagues, trying to get enough time in the major leagues where I could get a pension that when I got on the other side of it, I just said, you know, I want to make guys better. I want to make, I want to try to help with areas where I thought it were wrong when I was a player and how people were treated um, and be truthful with them and tell them. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've told a player, you know, he'd say, well, why aren't I moving up? And I go, okay, you had the same year as the other guy, right? And he moved up and he goes, yeah. And I go, what does he do that you don't do? And he goes, not much. Maybe he throws harder. And I go, you said it. I said, whether it's right or wrong, guys in the draft, that get drafted the highest throw harder than the other guys. Doesn't mean they're going to be better. But that that is the reason why they get more opportunities and sometimes quicker opportunities. Some guys didn't like me to say it, but I said, hey, I'm telling you the truth. That's what it is. That means you got to do everything better than him better than other people. You have to really take care of what you are and the type of pitcher you are and make yourself better and force people to give you an opportunity. And uh, so I preach that a lot in the minor leagues, but it, it it's, you know, minor league baseball is, is uh, you know, it's a grind. I, I kind of laugh now when I see all the new stuff going on, they're giving more money and, you know, all the stuff about where you stay and, all that kind of stuff. I go, oh my gosh! Back when Jim Cott was playing, ask him when he was making three hundred dollars a month. You know, uh, it was a whole different world. And you, you know, some of it was bad. Well, we didn't have much control. We didn't have unions and all that kind of stuff. So it was very difficult. But um, but there's a lot to be said for going through a grind and learning how to do it. Yeah. And Cott, one of the things that he told me, uh, Mark, that really stuck with me was that he would he would every morning after a night game or whatever, he, he at, at the end of the game, he would he would make an appointment with McKeon, the manager, who was also his catcher for the next day to come early and work. And him and Sandy Valdespino uh, would come in at 10 a.m. and work on all all aspects of the game. I think a little bit of that is lost too today because I think they focus so much on iPads and velocity that all these other little things that eventually make Cod a 16-time uh, gold glove uh, pitcher, uh, it's lost. Um, work ethic, can you explain to me work ethic in a proper way? Because I'm not saying these guys don't work hard. They may go to the gym, they may do this. But what about work ethic to make yourself a better pitcher? Well, you know – I learned a long time. When I was in college, I took a, I remember I'd taken a course and the professor said that nothing 
is better to prepare you than doing the exact activity or physical activity that you're going to be doing. Nothing. And it always stuck with me. I always thought, yeah, if I'm working on my delivery, just like I would in a game, I go, I'm getting more out of that than working on a balance beam, trying to get better balance. You know, it makes sense. If I'm a ballerina, I ain't going on a balance beam or on a balance, uh, one of those balance table things. Um, I'm going to do the actual activity. And it always made sense to me. And uh, sometimes it seems like we get away from that. I don't know whether it's the push button um, uh, video game kind of mentality that a lot of the the uh, analytics stuff kind of gets in where you think you all you have to do is press a button and it'll work. You have to do the activity. I mean, I, I might've thrown 370 innings that year in baseball, but that doesn't even count all the sides that I did, all the shadow stuff I did of my delivery, all the things that were directly related to pitching. I think we've gotten away from that. I mean, some of my pitchers, even back, Charlie Nagy used to go out there and do dry work and dry deliveries on the mound in the bullpen before batting practice. I'd look, I'd, he wasn't even his day to throw, and I'd look out there, and there he was doing his delivery. I mean, you do the activity, that's how you eventually develop feel to be able to command the ball, you know? It's funny to me when I watch a major league game now, and you know, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I'll tell you what, there are a lot more center cut pitches thrown today than there ever used to be. Absolutely. You know, and people, you know, they listen, I, I'm a pitcher, so I don't really care for hitters that much unless they're on my team. And I used to go, uh, you know, I'd watch a game and I'd see a guy, a guy look at that swing. And I go, well, yeah, it was belt high, four seamer right down the middle. I don't care how hard it throw, how hard you throw. It's not located. Then I see a guy and boy, he's really throwing the ball. Look at his stuff. Look how late his ball's breaking. I go, yeah, but look where it's ending up. It's in command. He moves the ball in. He moves the ball out. He's totally unpredictable. And I go, the predictability for hitters now and I don't care about, I mean, sure, it's easier because people punch it in a computer. They can tell you how many curveballs I throw on a one-two count. But you know what? When you're a good hitter, you already know that. You already know that stuff. You know what the patterns the guy falls into. Is he going to pitch different with the guy at second base? Oh, yeah, this guy always throws more breaking balls when he gets a guy at second base. Well, you know, like good hitters always knew that. They didn't need analytics to tell them that. And to me, that's where command, when you had command of pitches, and mo especially multiple pitches, you weren't predictable. So you got away with an 88-mile-an-hour sinker down and in on a right-handed hitter because you had him looking out over the plate. It didn't have to be 98. Now guys hit a ball 98 middle in, and they go, oh, he tried to go in on him. I go, let me tell you something. If he would have got it in, he would have never hit it. You know, it's it's so silly. They dumb down the sport. And I've always said that superstars, they already have a computer in their brain. They already know what a guy's going to throw before. They know where they're going to hit it. And they have the hand-eye to get there. They can get to pitches inside that other guys can't get to. 
That's why I always valued pitching in because there's only one or two guys in the lineup, even if they're looking, can get to a ball in. So, yeah, just, uh, go, go ahead, Mark. No, that's good. No, I, I just wanted to reiterate that the teaching standpoint is, you know, I see it day in and day out. I watch bullpens and, you know, I was a pitching coach and it's been a while, but there's no coaching. They have all the, the rap Soto and the track man set up. They have iPads there and they're trying to achieve pitch shape and, but nobody's taking the moment to say your balance isn't good. Your direction isn't good. You're flying open. And, and, you know, if you take care of the foundation things that I just mentioned, then the shape comes, comes into play and it's good. So you don't have to worry about having an iPad. I can see when it's shaped right. I can see when you have angle on your fastball and you're hitting the glove because you're now balanced online, you're finishing, you're not flying open, you're not falling off. And I sit and I watch that day after day, and I get it. I'm really old, and I've been around a long time, but when is somebody going to coach somebody? Well, you know, it's it's this is, you know, I know you guys have discussed it before. I've listened to some of your podcasts where, you know, feel is, is something that's lost. It, you know, I always tell players, I go, know what a good one looks like and know what it feels like. Mm. I said, I didn't have to know that my curveball had good shape to it. I knew what a good one looked like. And the hitter also showed me what a good one looked like because he didn't hit it. You know, like, it's like, it's so crazy. It's so crazy when, well, it's like now, I always laugh when they talk about, they went to the high fastball. You know, the high four-seam fastball. Well, you know, watch the Detroit game against Bob Gibson in the World Series and see how many guys he struck out with high fastballs. Right. Um, You know, it wasn't a new invention. You know, guys knew when they locked into a certain area, they said, you know, those guys can't lay off of it. I'm going to just keep pounding it there. Seaver, Palmer, (laughs) uh, working up and down the ladder their whole careers. Now, you know, they were – you know, it really, the really superior guys, they turn it into an art because they can command ball well enough to where they can paint the picture they want. You know, it's that's why I always tell guys, I used to congratulate guys who were pitching with on my teams, on the Rockies when I was the, the director of pitching there. I used to tell, I said, you know why you were so good today for me? And they go, why? And I go, you were totally unpredictable. I said, I watched the game. I've watched millions of innings. In my, I can almost call what pitch a guy's going to throw really easy now. In today's game, it's easy. Yep. It's easy. And they multiple. They'll throw four fastballs, five fastballs in the same area in a row. I'm like, who does that? <laughs> what are you trying to throw batting practice? You know, a weakness can be turned into a strength pretty quickly if you throw enough of them. You know, Mark, all of a sudden a guy makes an adjustment. I'll give you an example, and this is a, a you know, a special example. Um, Bo Jackson was playing for Kansas City, and Greg Swindell was pitching for us in Cleveland. We're in the old stadium in Cleveland. And uh, Charlie Manuel's our, our hitting coach, and Charlie used to stand up on the top step, right, you know, when, when the other team was hitting. And uh, – 
he would he'd be watching and and Swindell struck Bo out like the first two times up on on six pitches. Swindell had this riding high fastball that just had a little tail to it up in the zone. It made it look like he was throwing way harder than he was because guys couldn't get on top of it and it kind of tailed away from him. Uh, if you saw it in the bullpen, you go, oh, that's not that special. But to a hitter, the visual was was tough to, to get on top of, right? So third time up, Bo Jackson comes up and Charlie goes, oh, no. And I, and he, and I go, what? And he looks back to me sitting on the bench and he goes, he brought his hands up higher. And I go, he says he's getting ready for those high fastballs that Greg struck him out with <laughs> two times. He hit a ball about 500 feet. And Will, and, and he turned to me and he says, I told you. And he goes, Mark, I'm telling you, that isn't an easy thing to do during a game and during an at-bat. He goes, that's how great an athlete this guy is. But, you know, having said that, after watching games going forward, hitters like 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 uh, Doc Edwards used to say a major league hitter can time a bullet if he sees enough of them and that's today's game it's more true than ever because they see bullets in the same area pitch after pitch after pitch you make a little mistake or they make an adjustment it's gone you know because the predictability factor is gone Mark, I want you to tell a story you told me uh, off the air, and, and you're hitting on a point that is a topic we talk about on the show where velocity is definitely overriding intelligence on the mound. I want you to tell the audience a little bit, the kids and the coaches out there, the parents, thinking about 0-2 counts as a pitcher, what you saw in the 70s and 80s and, and what you're seeing in today's game. And I think you mentioned a, a veteran you had late in his career, Jack McDowell, that may have uh, he, he may have been a, a point of emphasis for him from you as a coach. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, you know, there's, you always make adjustments throughout your career. Um, you know, I went to our analytics people when I was at the Rockies and I, I just, I saw so many extra base hits, home runs, doubles, two out like bombs with men on base with two outs and two strikes on them. Oh, two counts. And I'm going, that never happened when I played. I said, if you, you know, matter of fact, they used to fine you if you got gave up a hit on 0-2. In the major leagues and the minor leagues, a lot of managers did. That's how you kind of learned. And guys that didn't have great command, young guys in the minor leagues, they used to tell the catcher, "If I get 0-2, sit in the other batter's box. I'm not going to get. I'm not going to lose a hundred bucks by making a mistake." It wasn't so bad if you made it one-two, but 0-2 was like that. Never happened, right? Never. So. So I'm sitting there going, watching these games, and I'm going, I'm seeing bombs hit. I'm seeing two, like I said, oh, two counts with you're out of the woods. There's two outs and two men on. You got a three-run lead, and guys are giving up three-run home runs to tie the game. I'm going, you got all kinds of pitches to throw in different areas to avoid the big bomb, and it's happening because it's all tied to stuff now. Everybody wants to outstuff guys rather than make a pitch to get him out or get him off balance. Now, back when I played, uh, the first time I really became aware of it, I was coaching with the Indians. can't remember it was 96, 7, somewhere in there. Jack McDowell, we picked up Jack McDowell 
to give us another veteran like Oral and Dennis. And uh, Jack was always known for a split. He won a Cy Young at, at the White Sox, and he had a split-fingered fastball, very good. He threw pretty hard, and the split was hard. And uh, and guys had a lot of trouble laying off of it. And he was a warrior kind of guy, and he attacked. Uh, you know, that was the one thing I liked about Jack was he was an attacker. Um, but later in his career, when I got him, you know, he used to also have this curveball that he used to just flip in there just to kind of keep him off balance. And then it made the fastball and split play that much better. Well, he had somehow hurt his forearm the year before, and he didn't really throw his curveball anymore because it hurt his arm to throw it. So he didn't have any off-speed pitches. And I, I tried to get him to throw a changeup. He said, I've never thrown changeups. So I'm not going to throw a changeup. And I said, Jack, your split, you don't throw as hard as you used to, so your split's not as late as it used to. It kind of tumbles. And you keep using it on 1-2 and 0-2 pitches and give up bombs. And I go, we've got to keep keep the predictability down with some off-speed stuff. Then if you can't throw a curveball, you got to throw a changeup. And you've got to pitch a little bit different because you don't have the same strength as you do and you don't have the same split. He refused. He wanted to do it the same way he always had. And so that's the first time I noticed it was how many extra base hits and stuff he'd give up at crunch time with 0-2 counts. And then I started paying attention to the years going forward. I started having more and more when the radar gun came into play more and everything became power. I saw it happening more and more and more. So, uh, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm always amazed when, like I said earlier, you know, how many balls down the middle of the plate are hit out of the ballpark and even worse when you've got leverage and you've got your head in the count. Those are such great pitching points. And clearly, Mark, you were analytically ahead during your whole career, too, because you saw trends. And like you said, these guys have computers, basically the good hitters, the good pitchers. Um, Such great pitching information. I mean, I can't thank you enough. But I have one more question that I want to ask because I like to, you know, part of what you guys do is traveling uh, everywhere, too. Uh, kind of a vagabond lifestyle, uh, but I got to ask you, you grew up in, La- and I, I spent 10 years in San Diego. You grew up in La Mesa, right outside San Diego. Then you went to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo. And no, then you- no, I went to Cal Poly in Pomona. Pomona. Okay. I'll, well, I'll don't let, let don't let the people in Pomona hear you <laughs> say San Luis Obispo. I used to give Ozzie Smith trouble when I played for San Diego. I go, you didn't go to the real Cal Poly. Okay, well, that, that helps a lot. But then you really had to bite the bullet because uh, in the minor leagues, you went to Hawaii and played for the Islanders in Honolulu. And I remember talking to Tony Gwynn about that experience. Um, what, what was some of that? So what were some of those experiences like as well, being in Hawaii? I know you had a few stops there. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think it ha- it's, like, it's, always, it's always fascinated me playing baseball in Hawaii. So just tell us about that. Well, you know, it was a, it was an advantage, and I'd gone over there as a visiting player many years, and I used to laugh because um, the younger AAA team that came over to Hawaii usually didn't fare very well. Um, it, I was on a Tacoma team who had been – we had a lot of veteran players, including Eddie Bain, as you mentioned. 
Um, and, you know, we kind of knew how to take care of ourselves. We knew what we were doing. We were going to Hawaii. We weren't in uh, Hawaii. We weren't into the nightlife and everything. It was a little bit different for a veteran club. So we always did pretty well over in Hawaii where a lot of other clubs just got waffled. And when I played over there on the Hawaii Islanders team, you know, we'd have these long, you know, we'd play a team for a week. We'd be there two weeks and we'd play two teams. Then we'd go to the States for two weeks. So it was kind of a, it was a funny schedule because of the flights and all that stuff. They didn't want to pay for too many flights. So you had long homestands, long road trips. But um, it was an unbelievable experience playing there. It was really fun. Um, You know, we would, you know, we became kind of part of the culture there. You know, I had routines. I don't think I was ever in better shape in my life than I was there because I was body surfing and swimming every day. Wow. Snorkeling, um, except for the day I was going to pitch. And and we had, we had, <laughs> I remember, we had even the guy, you know, those, you know, the, like on Hawaii Five O when they show those, those like, what are they like catamaran or outrigger? You know those things coming in on the waves. Yeah, yeah. The guys are paddling. Well, we'd be out on the beach, and the guy Wada was the guy that ran the surfboard rentals and everything. And he'd say, "Oh, we need some guy. We want some tourists that want to go out there and go on that." We go, "Okay." So we all we jump in and we paddle them out there and paddle them in. And and I always think of that when I see that TV show. But it was really fun, um, you know, and. You know, it was it wasn't hard to relax when you're like in paradise and you're playing. And I happen to have one of my best years ever there, so that helped too. Um, you know, it was just it was a different thing. It was a different place. Um, I know years ago, I talked to players that played there years ago in the early, like in the uh, '60s, and they told me because the pay wasn't that great in the big leagues. And some of those guys playing for Hawaii because it was more of an independent team. They weren't associated with the organization. So they get Joe Pepitone. They get, they get, they get ex major league stars to play over there. And they were making more money than they were when they were playing in the States. So they go, how good is this playing in Hawaii get paid? I don't need to get back to the big leagues. So, that was in the early years. It was, you know, they were making good money. And I mean, they gave me uh, my room. I had a roommate. We'd have a suite uh, a block from Waikiki Beach at the Outrigger Hotel. That, that's a good lifestyle. right? Yeah. There. And they give us a car to use. Is that go figure, right? Unbelievable. That sounds conducive to success, I'll say. Mark, I mean, (laughs) phenomenal stories. I think of phenomenal messages to our audience, our parents, our kids. Uh, We have people in Major League Baseball listening. Everybody seems to be very receptive to our guests, uh, especially our real voices of the game guests. So thank you so much for appearing on the show today. We'd love to have you back. I know there's some stories you haven't told. I know there's a couple in the – I got a couple in the holster about the bull. We'll have to bring those out the next time you come on. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got some stories about bull. He, we were a little light on him today, I think. together and he played for me. So we, uh, I got some, some stories. I, I, I've got a couple queued up. I'll save for next time for you. But uh, thanks for coming on today. Bull, thanks so much for appearing uh, in addition to your normal spot as a resident expert uh, because of your relationship with Mark. We, we love having you on as well. Kevin, my co-host, uh, Catch him on Ball 9, AMBS underscore Kernan. A great article out with Trader Jack McKeon and Jim Cott. 
uh, Kitty Cat. We love that. And then I'm Dave D'Agostino, your host here. Join us tomorrow. We have resident experts on tomorrow. Um, and stay tuned for that one, episode 15 tomorrow. Nice job, Mark. <laughs>